0: Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel Podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Get it all organized that way. Okay. Sometimes I think I need to bring my desk up here. Just kind of get it all organized that way. Okay. Well, good morning again, and I'm so excited that we have the opportunity to study God's Word together and look at this very important book, The Story of Esther, and to explore again how there's a God who's silent and how He works, even though He's silent and even though He's not seen, how He really is on the move in our midst. But before I get into that, I want you to... to understand a little bit of the backstory of how this message came to be, this series of messages came to be, and why Jessica is teaching with me here on Sunday morning. I I want you to understand this and grasp this. A couple folks had some questions after last week's service, and we just want you to know that Jessica is doing this under the authority of the Board of Elders, that she is is yielded to and, and and is following our direction and leadership as a board of elders here. We want you to be aware of that. She has worked on this message with me. We've studied the passage together. We've discussed it. We've talked about it. We've thought about how God is working through it and speaking through it. And we've, we've done that with each other this week. We did it the week before as well. We're doing it... This coming week also as we study it. And I just I want you to know that and understand that, that we take very seriously that every person that stands up in the pulpit here, whether it's me, whether it's Josh, whether it's Dan, whether it's Jessica, whether it's one of the, the missionaries that support us or a guest speaker, we care very deeply that they're faithful and true to what God's Word says. And we're accountable to the board and ultimately to the Lord that how we're handling the scripture, that we're being faithful and true to what the scripture says. And so I, I want you to understand that, that Jesse's here speaking with the blessing and approval and support of the elder board. And I want you to be aware of that, not, not to question that in any way, and that to understand that that's what's going on here. And we believe that God has a message for us through her to all of us as well, as he does through me and through the others who have spoken here from this pulpit as well. So I want you to be aware of that, you about that as well about that after the service, I'd be very, very happy to to talk with you about that as well. So let's launch into our our study in in, in Esther. And uh, previously in the story of Esther, we've been looking at and thinking about how God is working in this very unusual story. There's a lot of danger and drama and a lot of things that are very funny and comedic as well. But in the midst of all this, what we see that's so unusual about the book of Esther, the story of Queen Esther, is that God is never referenced. Here's a book of the Bible, and God's not even mentioned. Here's the book of the Bible, and no one even, you hear them praying to God. You don't, you don't see that. You don't see them calling on God. You don't see them doing anything like that. We don't hear God speaking and saying things. And so after a while, you're saying, huh? Should this book even be in the Bible? And there have been Christians over the years that have struggled with that and wondered whether Esther really should be part of the canon of Scripture. But it's interesting that the Jewish people believed it very strongly it should be and the earliest followers of, the canon of Scripture. Why? Because he is well. And they included Esther in the, in the canon of Scripture. Why? Because even though God appears to be silent, even though he cannot be seen in a dramatic way, even though it looks like he's hidden, it's very clear that God is on the move in Esther. It's very clear that God is working. And we used the analogy last week, it's like God is setting up a, a chess board or a game board and, and he's putting all the pieces. It's like the beginning of the game when you're putting all the pieces on the board and you're lining everything up and everything is getting organized. And then there's this, this big moment in chapter three when this crisis comes and the game has begun. And I'm not trying to say in any way, minimize in any way, the great danger that Esther and the Jewish people were under because it was not a game at all. It was something that would have been catastrophic for the Jewish people, but even more than that for you and I because what the Jews were threatened with was total annihilation and extinction. There was an evil man by the name of Haman. You might hear us King, King Ahasuerus. He's also known as King Xerxes you might hear us saying both names during the message but king ahashwerush was tricked into signing a decree that in 11 months after the pin was put to the paper that there could be mobs of people that could rise up against the jews and they were not allowed to defend themselves and they could be wiped out and their property plundered and so here's the largest empire of the world and jewish people who have left palestine because they were taken into exile and they're living there. It's been 100 years after they've been carried off into exile, and some of the Jews went back to the Promised Land, but others have stayed in ancient Persia, and they've settled down there, and they've made a home there, and they've become part of the culture there, and they have a happy life there, and all of a sudden, that's been turned on end. It's been turned on end because there's this one man. His name is Haman. He's the arch-villain of this dramatic story, and he is hell-bent on destroying the Jewish people. He is a descendant of a blood feud with the Jewish people, an Amalekite. And he holds a, a, a blood feud with the Jewish people and he wants to destroy them. He particularly wants to destroy one individual who's his personal enemy and his name is Mordecai. And Mordecai is a Jew that his, his ancestors have been carried off in captivity. He's settled into Persia. He's living there. He's developing a life there. He's actually a member of the court of the king of Persia. He's, part, he's a high-ranking government official. But Haman hates Mordecai, the Jew. Mordecai has a cousin, a young orphan girl, a Jewish girl. Her name is Esther. Her Hebrew name was Hadassah, but she's adopted a... a a Persian name that means star, and she's Esther. And through an unusual set of circumstances, Esther winds up being chosen to become the new queen of Persia, the wife of the king, the most powerful man in all the queen. She has great power, king of Persia, king Ahasuerus. And there she is, the queen. She has great power and influence now as this young person. From a rag to riches story, if there ever was one. And there she is, enjoying life in the court. Life is good, except now this terrible edict has been written by the king that all the Jews should be destroyed. And that's where we left off last week. What's going to happen? How is this tide going to be turned? Is there ever going to be a reversal? We said to you, as we were teaching last week, that Esther is a true comedy. And not in a sense of people standing up and telling jokes uh, or slapstick or things like that. But it's it's a comedy in the ancient sense of the word in the sense of that there's a tragedy about to happen. And at the last moment, there's a great reversal. And instead of people being destroyed, they're rescued. Instead of them being crushed and put down, they're actually lifted up and exalted. And it's a picture of that great reversal. That's what makes this incredible, that it just it is so great and so profound. This revo- reversal is so incredible that it just it gives me goosebumps as I read it. It makes me want to laugh. It makes me want to cheer and shout. In fact, the Jewish people over the centuries, as they've read this story, they've actually done that. They've had whistles and rattles and noisemakers, and they've cheered for Esther and Mordecai, and they've booed and hissed for Haman. And in all of this, they're celebrating the story of God miraculously in almost a comedic way, delivering the people of God. They were threatened with destruction, and they've been rescued. And not only have they been rescued, but they've been exalted and lifted up as well. We pick up the story in chapter four, Esther chapter four, and I'm reading on page 412. I encourage you to turn there and follow along as well. And what I want you to see is now the game is being played. And you see Esther doing things, and you see Mordecai doing things, and you see Haman doing things, and you see Ahasuerus kind of being, there's somebody else who really some things too, but there's somebody else playing this game. There's somebody else who really knows strategically how to move all the pieces, who controls all the cards, who knows everything that's going on, and that's Almighty God. And you'll see him working, even if you don't hear his name, even if you don't witness some great majestic miracle, we're going to see and hear that there's a God who acts, and because he acts, we can act as well and do his will. So in Esther chapter 4, we begin reading, when Mordecai heard all that had been done, this terrible edict demanding and, and commanding that the Jewish people be annihilated, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was many of them lay in sackcloth and with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. And so when Mordecai hears this government edict being passed, he decides to do something about it. He doesn't raise up a militia to go fight against it. He doesn't start Causing you know some sort of Jewish defense council to, to you know, fight against what the, the mobs are going to do in a couple months. He doesn't even storm into the palace and demand an audience with the king. What he simply does is he just calls attention to the fact that something awful is about to happen. He takes off his clothes of dignity that honor and, and show his honor and dignity and, and power as a member of the, the royal government. He lays that all aside, and he puts on scratchy, ugly clothing, clothing that you would wear if you were mourning. It's kind of like today when you notice people, not so much in our country, but in, especially in Europe and other places around the world, when someone dies, they put on like a black armband and they wear that. Or your drapery that they've hung on the outside of the firefighter has died and they have that, that black bunting, You know, the drapery that they've hung on the outside of the firehouse and they're symbolizing. Or maybe you've even seen someone, a police officer wearing his badge and there's a black strip across it that just says that somebody on their police force was killed in action or died in the line of duty. All those are little outward signs of mourning, people wearing black at funerals. It's the same kind of idea. Mordecai is saying, something's about to die, and I'm mourning, and I'm grieving over this because I cannot believe that something this awful is about to take place. And so he's wearing this ugly, scratchy, dull-looking clothing. He's sitting in ashes, and he's crying. He's wailing. He's lamenting. He's grieving in all of this. It's kind of a protest also. He's not only expressing the feelings of his heart, but he's also crying out to God in the process. And I'll show you why in a minute I believe that. And he's also trying to call attention to what's going on. Well, somebody does catch attention. Throughout the Persian Empire, we're in this whole story. It says in verse 3 that Jews throughout the Persian Empire were doing the same kind of thing that Mordecai was doing. They were lamenting. They were crying. They were wailing. They were wearing sackcloth. They were sitting in ashes. All the Jews in the whole empire were doing that except for one. There was a young lady sitting in the palace who was oblivious to all this, apparently. And it was Queen Esther. She had been insulated from all this, and she doesn't even know what's going on. She has no concept of why Mordecai would be doing this. In fact, when the messengers come in and tell her, your cousin Mordecai is sitting out by the king's gate. He can't come into the palace and talk to you. He's sitting out there in sackcloth and ashes, and he's crying. And Esther's thinking, what in the world is going on? So she has clothing sent out to him. You know, put on some clean clothes. Wipe your face off. Come inside and tell me what's going on. And Mordecai refuses to do that because the most important thing that he could do at that time was to cry and lament and and weep and wail in this way. And so he's doing that. Esther sends the messenger out, told the messenger all that had happened from him. And it says in verse 7 that, Mordecai told the messenger all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Remember, this was something that Haman had done to bribe the king, so to speak. If you let me kill all these, these people that are insubordinate to you, I can promise you 10,000 talents of silver, basically 300 tons of silver, the, the entire revenue shortfall that the Persian Empire was experiencing that year. You know We can just provide for everything, the whole budget, if you just let me get rid of these people. I promise you that. And Mordecai gave this messenger, in verse 8, a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, the capital, for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. You've got to go tell Esther that she has to tell the king to stop this and reverse it somehow. And, and do something about it. He's got to. And so the messenger goes in, who has access to the king and can do it. And so the messenger goes back and talks to Esther. And Esther then speaks to the messenger and tells him to go back to Mordecai. And this is Esther's reply in verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called In other words, if you go and interrupt the king, if you go in there uninvited, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Mordecai, I get what you want me to do. You want me to go talk to the king, but there's a problem. If I go in uninvited, I could get killed. And you say, that's pretty harsh. Are you sure? Is she just being dramatic, a little melodramatic here? What's going on? Well, you know, it's interesting. And they have found, have, have done some digging at the ancient Persian city of Persepolis. And they have found two different carvings on walls. These are these relief sculptures. They've been carved into the wall. And they show courtroom scenes. Uh, rather, the, the, the throne room scenes of the king, the royal court. And it shows the king, the monarch, sitting on his throne and he's holding in his hand a a staff that's as tall as he is. So don't think when he says the the staff, it's not like a little wand like, Ping! you know, everything goes better like that. It's not that. It's like a big, a big stiff, big staff. My kids, after watching Lord of the Rings, they would find a big stick and say, here's my Gandalf staff. You know, I'm just going around with a Gandalf stick like that. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about, this big staff made of gold, and the king would hold that. And that was a sign of his authority either to execute judgment or extend approval. And Esther's saying, you can't just barge in and ask the king to do something. You have to be invited if you do go in uninvited, unless the, what, the, only, the, the staff to you indicating that you've won favor with him, you know what, the only, the only recourse for you is death. Those same sculptures that show the king sitting on his throne with his staff, there are a couple big, strong Persian soldiers standing behind them holding axes. They're ready to be the bouncers. They'll just bounce your head right off. That's what they're talking... This was true. This really was a threat to Esther's life. We see it in this artwork, this sculpture this archae- that archaeologists have found. This is really true, what she's concerned about. And there's one more layer of difficulty here. The king hasn't asked to see me for 30 days. I haven't seen him for a month. And you're saying, come on, she's the queen, Don't they have dinner together? Don't they sleep together? Don't they share a royal bedroom? Don't they do that? Actually, in those days and in that culture, the queen had her own apartment. She had her own social calendar, her own life. They did not to kind of live a parallel existence to do that. So it was not uncommon for the king to kind of live a parallel existence to the king, for the queen to do that. It's not uncommon for that to happen. And Esther's saying, he hasn't asked to see me for 30 days. And you say, well, Certainly, the husband would want to see his wife in, within 30 days, would you think? He's got a harem. He has all these women at his command. He, he doesn't have to have Esther there. She's still queen. She's still his trophy wife. She still honors him. But he hasn't seen her for 30 days. Esther's saying, I know what you're asking me to do, Mordecai, but this is dangerous. This is dangerous to me, and it could be dangerous to you and all the Jews as well. Mordecai has a reply in verse 12, and he sends this message back. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther Do not think to yourself that in the king, get away and save your pretty neck more than the other Jews. If you think that you can get away and save your pretty neck by just staying in the palace and doing nothing, I got news for you, sister. No, you're in danger too. You're in danger too because they're going to find out that you're a Jew and you will be exterminated. And anybody else who's part of your family, any other living relative, they're going to be exterminated as well. So look at it this way, Esther. You can approach the king and you might die, but you might not. He might let you come. Or you can do nothing and you will die. So what are you going to do? I mean, he kind of lays it out pretty plainly, don't you think? Pretty stark uh, analogy there. It's, uh, it's quite clear. Mordecai also tells her, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Which as I study this, and many of the rabbis who have studied it, and other scholars, relief and deliverance is going to come. I think this is a veiled reference to Almighty God. Relief and deliverance is going to come from another place. God is going to come through and rescue us one way or another. Even if you don't speak up, someone else will come through. God will send them to deliver us. But you and your father's house will perish. And then he appeals to one more thing about Esther's life. And he's calling up something very strong and noble in her. And he says this, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther. Of all the people that the king could have chosen to be his queen, of all the girls that were brought in, he chose you. That's no accident. God has a purpose for your life. He has a plan for you. Could it be that you are On the queen's throne for such a time as this. Could it be that you're wearing the queen's crown for authority and position and access time to use the privilege and power and authority and position and access that you have as queen? Now's the time to use it. Could it be that God has put you here at this time and this place for this purpose? In verse 15, Esther replies to all this. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. It says that Mordecai went away and did everything that Esther told him to do. It's very interesting that Esther says, look, I want you to fast for three days. No food or drink for three days, three nights. Don't do that. And and not just you, I'm going to fast personally and I'm going to around the city. But I want my, I'm going to fast personally and I'm going to have all my attendants fast as well. And we're going to pray and we're going to fast we're going to ask God to do something. See, fasting is not a a hunger strike. She's she's not conducting a hunger hunger strike here. She's giving up food and drink for this purpose. The purpose is is that she may draw near to God and connect to God. And you say, well, it doesn't say that she's praying. She says she's just going to skip food and drink. It's interesting. When you read Esther's story, and you read here in chapter 4 in particular and you see Esther fasting and you see also at the beginning of the chapter in verse 3, notice that, go back, flip the, lift the page over and see there, that when the Jews heard what was going on, how did they respond? They responded with fasting and weeping and lamenting. Some Bible teachers have noticed that this is an echo of Joel chapter 2, verse 12. And Frank, if you'd put that slide up, please. He told the people of Israel, a prophet who spoke before the days of Esther, he told the people of Israel that when you come into a great crisis, when you have a tremendous calamity and you're in great danger and God is is disciplining you, this is how you respond. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Those are the exact same words in the Hebrew as the the narrator of Esther says in verse 3 of how the Jews responded, except it, it says with fasting, weeping, and lamenting, the word mourning and lamenting in the same word in Hebrew in Joel 2 and Esther chapter 4. It's like there's an echo. It's like there's an echo. It's like that the writer of the story of Esther is remembering something that Joel said in Joel chapter 2 when he's prophesying to the people of Israel. It's like there's a, there's a connection there. And could this be, and I think it's possible and highly likely that what the writer here is, he's reporting this story, he's telling us that that Esther in this crisis, not by Joel was saying, and they responded to this crisis, not by forming a militia, not by fleeing from Persia, but by fasting, by praying, by grieving over their sin, by turning to the Lord. Look what it says. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. For he is slow to anger and is abounding in steadfast love. Who knows whether he will turn, He will. who knows he will not return and relent, whether he will not return and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Again, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. What Joel is trying to say here is the Holy Spirit inspired him, when you grieve and mourn over this sin, don't just put on sackcloth. Don't just tear your clothing and, as a, a fit of anger and, and sadness and grief. Tear your heart. Humble yourself. Cry out to me. Cry out to the Lord. Slow to anger. He is steadfast in his mercy and he's abundant in pardoning and he is slow to anger. And he will come to the rescue. In fact, he will bless you that you're in such a way that you're able to give an offering to worship him when it's all said and done. So when Esther is asking for Mordecai and the other Jews in the city Susa to pray, I think she's mindful of this. She's mindful of the promise in Joel. The Jews were remembering this. The rabbis, the teachers were remembering this, that there's a God who does hear and answer when we humble ourselves and we lament and cry out to him in prayer, asking for his help. And who knows whether he will not turn and relent. Kind of has that same idea of Esther just saying, if I perish, I perish. There's a sense where she's surrendering to the Lord, not in resignation in the sense of, well, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. No, I surrender to the Lord and I resign myself to the Lord and I put myself in his hands. And if he takes my life through this, then God is to be praised for the Lord. And if he spares my life and rescues the Jewish people, then God is to be praised for that as well. I'm putting myself into his hands. Do you see how Esther's starting to act here? Mordecai starts off by protesting and calling attention to what's going on. Esther carries it forward by identifying with the Jewish people. She finally says, I can't just ignore what's going on. I am going to go talk to the king. But before I do, I'm going to fast and pray so that God will open the door, so that God will work in this situation. And so she chooses to identify with the Jewish people. She kind of remembers that her name by birth is Hadassah, that she belongs to the Jewish people. She belongs to the Lord. And she begins to identify with them. She kind of lays aside her Persian royalty for a moment and says, no, I'm a Jew first. I'm a child that belongs to God first, and I need to surrender to him. And I'm going to cry out to him and ask for his deliverance. And I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to go appeal to the king. And she promises to do. We pick it up with Jesse as she teaches us just now.
1: Esther, chapter five, is two different stories contrasting wisdom and folly. We're going to see a wise queen and a very foolish advisor. As Pastor Scott said, Esther has now positioned herself internally, she's humbled herself before God. And now she is ready to position herself externally to see the king. We're going to take a look at this this second. This is the second time we've seen her have an audience with the king. And this is not the same Esther that we saw in chapter 2. The Esther of chapter 5 is very different. Let's read verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. This is a woman who has decided that that now she's going to take some hunger. The, the victim in chapter 2 has decided that now she's going to take some control. She is going to move forward in her position. The Bible says that uh, she put on her royal robes, but actually the Hebrew says she put on royalty. I think that's a, a kind of a twofold meaning there. Yes, she does put on externally the royal robe. She puts on the clothing that befits her station, probably jewelry and her crown. She comes to the king. She's going to make this audience in clothing that is appropriate to be seen in the throne room. This is not yoga pants or ripped jeans. She's dressed nicely, she's dressed with respect and honor to the king. We see her throughout this whole chapter acting very humbly. But in addition to that, I think this is also someone who is putting on the significance of royalty. As Mordecai said, maybe you've been elevated to this position for a reason. We see her take some ownership of it. We see her put on those robes, both for God has for her next, phorically, and she is ready to step forward into whatever God has for her next. This time um, is very different than the first time she saw the king. She chooses her clothes. The last time, she let someone else choose for her. This time, she chooses them. She is putting on a new identity. She is putting on the queen. And she is stepping out and seeing what will happen in this position that God has placed her in. She stands in the inner court and she waits for him to notice her. Imagine the scene, if you would, for a moment. We don't have a whole lot of details on how everyone responded. But can you imagine that maybe they were a little shocked? Maybe there was a gasp? Maybe a few people were like, oh, what's going to happen here? They're a little nervous. Maybe there's tension. I don't know how much tension is in the room with everyone else. Maybe not everyone noticed, but certainly Esther has to feel the tension, stepping in, standing there, just waiting for him to notice her and wait for what he will do. We see when, when she does this um, in, uh, in verse number two, it's, and he held out to Esther the goldster standing in the court. She won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. This is um, the the big moment, the big tense moment. And the king extends the scepter to her and she steps forward and places her hand on it. We don't have a lot of record of of the protocol regarding the scepter. We know that he had one. We know historically that was the case as well as in the scripture. It may be possible that this was not really something that she had to do, but more that she was acknowledging her humility before him and her awareness of his mercy that he extends in allowing her to come near. It's more like maybe a tender moment where she is in some way acknowledging that he did not have to accept her, but she's glad that he did. And so she comes forward and touches the scepter and the king asks her, what's troubling you? He says, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you. She just hasn't come for something frivolous. He is obviously aware that this is something going on. This isn't just, she just hasn't come for something frivolous. This is a life or death situation. She must be troubled. This must be important. And he wants to, to meet her. He wants to meet her at this moment of need and see what he can do for her. He extends this kindness to her, and her answer is a little shocking. She says, in verse four, "If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king." She doesn't immediately ask him for what she wants. She asks him to come to dinner. I think she's doing a couple of things. I think we can really see her wisdom at this point and her savviness. She understands palace intrigue and how the palace works. She also understands the king. And she understands a few interesting things about him. First of all, she understands that it's important to get him away from his advisors. You know, in chapter one, when he had the conflict with Vashti, he couldn't solve that on his own. He had to bring in his advisors. He had to get other people to weigh in. She doesn't want this decided in a committee. She wants to appeal to him as the queen, as his wife, aside into something, and I think so. She doesn't do it in the throne room. She pulls it, she wants to pull him aside into something, and I think she's also making it more of a of an intimate request. This is not this is not something that she's just demanding of him, but as the relate, she's she's bringing relationship into it. I would like to ask you to do something for me." And so she's pulling him away from his advisor, she's putting him in in, in, in a relationship atmosphere, but she's also doing something else. This is a guy who likes parties, doesn't he? He likes feasts, he likes wine, he likes to make decisions when he's drinking wine. So she knows him and she has set up an appropriate venue where he will feel comfortable where he'll feel it safe and, and, and as something that would be very natural for him. So she is, is, is kind of maneuvering him into this position and she's doing one other thing that's very interesting and we're gonna see it with each request. She is starting a chain of requests that is going to get harder and harder for him to say no. With each request, if he says something simple in her humility way, and so she's starting small, She's asking for something simple. In her humility and wisdom, she says, if it pleases you, please come to dinner and bring Haman with you. I have this banquet prepared. And so the king immediately sends for Haman, and they go into the banquet. The king knows there's something more at stake. She didn't didn't risk risk her life to invite me to dinner. There's something else. And so he asked it of her again. And he says, as they were drinking wine, in verse 6, After the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow... I will do as the king has said. We see her again narrowing his options. She says, if I found favor with you, fulfill my request, please come. You are willing to, to, to do what I've asked, to fulfill my request, please come to this banquet and I'll tell you what it is. She has, she has kind of backed him into a little bit of a corner here, and his, his answer, yes, I will come to the banquet, means that she's likely to receive what she's asking for he is she has been very masterfully and very humbly kind of backed him into a corner and so at this point um she doesn't tell the king anymore she says come back tomorrow I'll have another banquet bring Haman along with you and I will tell you my request if it pleases you to do it and so we see this part as the the wise queen who is savvy but next we're going to move on to a very foolish advisor who makes some pretty bad decisions. It says that Haman went out that day in verse 9, joyful and glad of heart. He had just been in a special banquet with the queen, and he is happy. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was honor and has no ability to against Mordecai. This is a man who has received a great honor and has no ability to enjoy it and appreciate it as soon as he's confronted with the one thing in his life standing in his way. Now that Mordecai has made his presence known when he walked out of the gate, he is an unhappy man. He is angry. It says that he was able to restrain himself and he went home. He sends for his wife and his friends, and then he does something... And that's quite humorous when you read it. In verse 11, it says, Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions to which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow I am also invited by her together with the king. He gives his resume to his family and friends. I would assume they already know he's rich. I am assuming his wife knows how many sons he has. But he's recounting all this. (laughs) As soon as someone threatens it, he thinks, look how wonderful I am. This is a man with a very high ego. And as soon as someone threatens it, he has to trot out his list of all these things that make me great. And he puts puts that out there. He tells them, this is all the things about me that are so wonderful. And you would think the man with a list like that should be happy. But he goes on to say in verse, verse 13, yet all of this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. His anger, his uh, sense that the, the, the Jewish people have stolen something from him. Remember, this is as Pastor Scott mentioned. He was a descendant of kings of the Amalekites. And they, his father, his, his ancestor, this King Agag, was assassinated and he lost his ability to have his kingdom. That is coloring every decision. His hatred, his rage, it fuels everything. And he can't enjoy all of his sons and his riches and his, and his vaulted. That it was worth nothing. So angry over something that was taken away. That it was worth nothing to him. All of the good things in his life. So his wife decides to give him some advice. The the language in uh, the Hebrew is very feminine. It says his wife, Zeresh, is making this decision at the, uh, I guess, approval of all the friends. And it says, "...let gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made." This is a bit of hyperbole. This um, 50-cubit gallows would have been about 75 feet high. It would have been the highest thing in, in Susa. It would have been higher than the palace. I think that it probably wasn't quite that high, but I think she's saying, build it high, let everyone see. And it's not a gallows as you and I might think of, as we see, you know, the Old West with the gallows, but it's more of a, a long pole that the dead body of Haman would be hung from so that everyone could see. One final humiliation to them, so that he went out and had the, that this pole, and this was going to be his plan, and he liked it so much that he went out and had the, that this pole put up that night and he's ready to go see the king in the morning. And we end chapter 5 with a very wise queen and a very foolish advisor, and they both close out their day and go to sleep. They both put forth their plans. Esther put in motion a plan to save her people. Unknowingly, she might, might succeed, but she might lose her own family. Mordecai might be killed in the morning. She could save her people, but lose someone very dear to her. She also has no idea if God's going to come through. She, she's done what she could. She's set as much in motion as she could, but the rest of this relies on God. And she doesn't know if he'll, he'll do what she asked. And so she goes to bed with her plan in place, and Haman does the same. He goes to sleep probably more confident than Esther did, I would, would imagine, from what we see of him. He probably imagined in the morning he was going to get everything he wanted, and he could be happy to him of this Mordecai who went to sleep with this uh, plan in place that was going to relieve him of this Mordecai who was just a, a, a eyesore to him every time he saw him. But as Proverbs 19.21 reminds us, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And the one who never sleeps is still working. He is not sleeping. He is, he is positioning more things to happen. He is working behind the scenes. And now, finally, the tide is about to turn.
0: So in chapter 6, begins, we see that there's someone who's having trouble sleeping, and that's King Ahasuerus. And the amazing thing about chapter 6 is that we see God orchestrating these two seemingly insignificant minor events, ordinary events, and God is using these two events to bring It says that on people, and it starts right here in chapter 6. It says that on, the night, on that night the king could not sleep and he gave orders to bring the book of the memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Maybe you've done that before. You've woken, awoken in the middle of the night. You're maybe wondering or worrying about things or had too much coffee before bed or something like that. And you just get a magazine or a book or do something to try to distract your mind and relax and fall asleep. And that's what the king is doing. And there's nothing that will put you to sleep like uh, records of government actions and inactions and things like that. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Thana. And Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs or servants who guarded the threshold, and who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Now you remember, we talked about this last week. That in an earlier chapter, that after Esther became queen, Mordecai, in his position as a a government leader, he over and he gave the news to King Ahasuerus by these two servants that have been named here. And he gave the news to Esther who reported this information on Mordecai's behalf to the king. And the king was able to thwart this assassination attempt on his life. And so the king is awake enough listening to this and he is prompted somehow. And he asks in verse 3, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Nothing, and you'll remember that from the earlier chapter as well, is that Mordecai gets rec- is, is, is able to help thwart the plot, but nothing happens. He gets no reward, no recognition, doesn't get to meet the king. Nothing happened Goes nothing like that happens, and he's forgotten. The point is, is that here God has made sure that he's not forgotten as well. The young men say nothing has been done for him, and the king said, Who is in the court? Who, who of my servants are here to help me find out what to do? About having Mordecai hang just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Now, do you see this? I get goosebumps telling this story and, and just almost want to start laughing. Mordecai excuse me Haman is coming and he is desirous of having Mordecai executed and humiliated and he's first thing on his to-do list that day big job that he's got on his agenda is ask king to kill Mordecai and humiliate him on the gallows and he's going in he's going to bring that up in his meeting with the king as they start their day together and Mordecai is ready to do that but the king preempts him because he's been awake and it's now early in the morning and Mordecai, has, Haman has showed up to do his job. And as he's coming into the office, so to speak, the king says, I want to see Haman. And so when Haman finally comes into the king, what we're going to notice is Haman wants to lift up Mordecai on the gallows. Reversals start to take place. Lift up Mordecai with honor. We're going to see this great reversal start to take place. Haman is there, standing in the court, and the king said, Let him come in. So Haman, verse 6 says, Came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? I mean, what a question. What should I do to recognize someone who has really helped me, and I want to honor him? What, What would you recommend that I do? And here's the funny part. Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Who, who would be, who would really, you know, who does he want to honor more? I'm the, the, the king's favorite. I'm the most important person. The king delights in me more than anybody else. So I'm going to tell him what I would want. And look at what he wants. Haman said to the king in verse 7, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. And the robes and the horse be handed and on whose head the royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits in the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. And can you imagine Haman at that moment? Oh, my God. Oh. What? Yes, your majesty, right away. And the whole time. And he's picking out the robe that he would want to wear. And he's getting the crown and polishing it that he would want to wear. And he's getting the stallion that he would want to ride. And he's doing all of this. And picks him up and says, the king to the gate and find Mordecai sitting there in sackcloth and crying. And picks him up and says, the king wants to delight. He delights in you and he wants to honor you. Come with me. And they go. And he gets dressed and washed up and put on a horse and the crown is put on his head. And Haman himself has to lead him through the city so that everybody in the entire capital witnesses Mordecai the Jew as the one the king delights to honor. And people are probably starting already to scratch their beards saying, what? You know, king just ordered killing all the Jews and here's Mordecai the Jew getting honored. What is, what is happening? And people are probably wondering what's going on in all of this. And Haman's beginning to wonder about this as well. In fact, it simply says this, that after he had done that, after he took him through the city and said all of this, in verse 12, it says that Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. He started out that day thinking that Mordecai would be dead. But instead, he the people of the community. Haman had to exalt Mordecai in the eyes of the king and in the eyes of the people of the community. Haman had to do the king's bidding and lift up his enemy and exalt and honor him. And so that Mordecai is honored and Haman is brought low. That's why he's weeping and mourning. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him. The reversal has begun. This is why this story is called a comedy. It looked like tragedy, and all of a sudden, things are beginning to turn. The tide is beginning to turn, and Haman is not getting his way. He's being put in his place. He's being judged and condemned, and he's being brought low, and Mordecai the Jew is being lifted up, and that's a foreshadowing of what is about to happen to all the Jewish people as well. And it simply says this, that while they were talking with him, the Esther had prepared and survived. And hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. And so there we are with another cliffhanger. What is going to happen next? Now, I think there are a couple very powerful takeaways for you and I as we read this story and think about it. It's an exciting story. It's a great story to read. It's really wonderful to laugh at certain things and to learn and see that there's a God who does act and work on behalf of his people. Even though you can't see him and you don't hear him, God is still working. And the lesson for us is that God is working and moving even in your life when you can't see him. Esther's not sure what's going to happen. That's what makes her faith so great. She's not sure she might die in the process, yet in faith she trusts God. She fasts and prays and takes the risks and goes and asks the king for the audience and the opportunity to express her request. She's willing to do that because she's willing to trust in the God who acts and he does act. And we see him acting majestic in some way. We often think that God has to do something spectacular and dramatic, majestic in some way. And yet God used insomnia of a king And the timing of a royal official who was so much in a hurry, so antsy to get in the king and get his enemy killed that he shows up at the exact moment when the king needs help knowing how to honor Mordecai. And he even uses that foolish advisor, his ego and his pride, thinking that he would be honored when really it was Mordecai. God uses even that craziness to lift up Mordecai as the true person that the king delights in, not Haman, the enemy. And he does that as a foreshadowing of the rescue and deliverance that he's about to provide for his people. What is God calling you to do? Is it risky? Is it dangerous? Is it challenging? A, a, a challenge that you Maybe there's a, there's a ministry that God is calling to you. Maybe there's a, 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 a challenge that you need to stand up and oppose. Maybe it's a temptation or a struggle that you have in your life and you need to be willing to stand up. Maybe it's fighting for your marriage. Maybe it's working at rebuilding your relationship with your spouse or with your children. Whatever it might be. Maybe it's a friend that needs to come to faith in Christ. Whatever that challenging, risky thing that God may be calling you to do, I want you to understand that on the basis of what we read in Esther, you don't do that by yourself. You don't do it alone. Esther's not going into the the throne room with her own charm and her own beauty and her own political savvy and her own political connections. That's not wins the day. That's not what gives her favor with the king. That's not what opens the door for her. It was the gracious working of God that caused the king to tip his scepter in in her favor. You and I have a cry out to him. We're told, hear you and hear me in our moment of trial when we cry out to him. We're told in Psalm 55, verse 22, cast your burdens upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be moved. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, we're told to boldly come before the throne of grace to receive the help that we need in our time of trouble. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of grace, and he wants to help us. He's not a ruthless, bloodthirsty king like Ahasuerus, who was so mercurial and so vacillating in his views. Not like that. We have a God who loves you and is steadfast and is faithful and is true, and he invites you in his presence. And it's not because of how long you've been a Christian or how good you are at being a Christian. It's not that. It's because his son, Jesus, opened the door for you to come into that presence. In fact, in this story, I think there's a couple echoes of Jesus. I really do. And I don't think it's an accident because the Spirit of God inspired this story like he did all extending. One echo I see is, yes, Ahasuerus extending a welcome to Esther and inviting her to come in and her graciously receiving that by touching the tip of his scepter and being welcomed into his presence and to hear her request. So we certainly see that. I think that's an echo of Jesus opening the door for us. But there's one other thing. It's a little thing. It's easy to miss. It's maybe, maybe not even that significant, but to me it's very powerful. It stands out like a red flashing light. It says that Esther fasted For three days. And on the third day, she went to the king. And that's when the deliverance began. I'm not trying to say that the author of Esther had an idea that Jesus would rise from the dead on the third day. I'm not trying to suggest that at all. But I am saying that this is one of those divine coincidences in Scripture. Can we call it that? You and I get our story on the third day deliverance came. You and I get our access. We find our deliverance on the third day. Jesus was lifted up (laughs) like Haman wanted to impale Mordecai on the gallows. Jesus was lifted up, impaled, so to speak, with nails on a cross hanging there for us, dying in our place, and then he was buried in a tomb, and three days later, he came back to life. He was raised from the dead to give us the open door. We have a, a access to the throne through that new and living way that Christ has made for us. So you don't have to be as beautiful as Esther or have the political connections that Esther has or have the the political savvy and know-how, how how to schmooze and negotiate like, like Esther knew how to do. You don't have to do that to have God's attention. You don't need that to get God's favor. You already have it because of Jesus who was lifted up for you on the cross and who was raised from the dead on the third day to get the help we need. And I have access to the throne of grace to get the help we need, to do the will of God, to do the work of God, and bring glory to his name. Esther and Mordecai could not save the Jews by themselves. That's why God is the true hero of this story. He's the heroic rescuer who came through when his people cried out to him. He's the one who's brought about a deliverance and we're gonna see that deliverance in such a magnificent way as we finish up the story of Esther next week. I hope you'll come back and listen. Let's pray together. Father, we give thanks to you that you are the faithful and true God who listens and hears. And even though there are times we can't see you, we're not sure you're even there. We don't feel your presence. Thank you that you are there. And we claim your promises and we stand on your truth and we believe, we believe that you are the God who comes to the rescue. Help us to our hearts and cry for you promise to sustain us. Help us to rend our hearts and cry out to you because you're the God of steadfast love and forgiveness who's not always angry at all, but you're willing to forgive and show mercy. Thank you that Christ opened that door for us to receive that love, that mercy, that grace always in all situations when we cry out to you. I pray that we would do that, Lord, and not hold back because you're the God who never holds back and showing your love to your people. Thank you, Father, for this truth. May we claim it. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.